Welcome to One of Eighteen, Not Just a Number, Episode Four. In Episode Three, we listened to two beautiful stories that our big sister Margaret Virginia wrote about Oswego, and our siblings shared memories of her. Now, in Episode Four, and the beat goes on, you will be introduced to John Foster, Number Two, Paul Edward, Number Three. And James Patrick, number four. None of them, just a number. For images related to this episode, please go to one of eighteen, not just a number dot com. That's O N E of one eight, not just a number dot com. Enjoy. Episode number four, and the beat goes on. In the spring of 1938, our mother continues to commute to Syracuse University to study voice, and our father is preparing for his graduation recital. He graduates in only three years. He dominated, and he has chosen to receive a full scholarship for a master's in music. Now, World War II. Was to begin in 1939, so it's no surprise that most of the major events of 1938 involve events that lead up to the war. Significant steps were also taken this year towards the Nazi Holocaust. Jewish passports were invalidated in Germany. Those Jews who needed a passport for the purposes of emigration were given passports with the letter J, Jude or Jew, marked on them. In November, Nazi activists looted and burned thousands of Jewish businesses and places of worship. I mention this because, as fate would have it, Oswego, our parents' hometown, would be the only city in the United States that would harbor thousands of Jewish refugees at the end of World War II. The refugees had already fled Nazi persecution in their own countries, and were now in Italy, where they were living in. Pretty dicey situations. So when they arrived in Oswego, they were housed in the Fort Ontario Refugee Shelter from about August 1944 to February 1946. Men, women, and children from 18 countries lived in the abandoned barracks. Their basic needs being met by the federal government. What is truly remarkable is that among these refugees were gifted musicians who, while in a swiggo, composed and performed an operetta, "The Golden Cage," which told their story of finding safe harbor there. Isn't it just wild that this is part of a swiggo's history? Soon you will hear from my brother John Foster, number two, not just a number. And his vivid memories of World War II and the jubilant Victory Day. So, okay, let's go back, back to spring of 1938. Mother is pregnant again, and my parents move to a duplex on East Sixth Street. Our brother, John Foster Callahan Jr., number two, not just a number, was born on September 22, 1939, weighing in at a robust nine pounds twelve ounces. And although Margaret, number one, was born via cesarean, John was a natural birth, with a bit of help from forceps, which left him with a black eye. Mother said she was stunned to see John's face for the first time. It was as though he had been in a fight, 
which, of course, he had. Please listen to a sampling of John Foster, number two, not just a number, and his memories of Oswego. I have memories of Oswego that cover quite a bit of my lifetime. As a child living there for my first four years, I have very little recall. I do remember Margaret and I went to some kind of a preschool experience at the college, then called Teachers College at Oswego, an experimental program that was a precursor to pre-K programs now. I remember we went on a bus and Margaret was pretty much in charge of me, although I have no recollection of my school activities. We played in the backyard of 162 often, and I remember crawling under the front porch and exploring there. I remember doing a lot of climbing and crawling wherever I could. It was probably much more physically active than Margaret. But I remember Big Paul reading to us often, especially Nurse Jane Fuzzy Wuzzy and Peter Rabbit stories, which I love, especially the clever drawing drawings both books had. I remember Sunday roast beef dinners in the dining room at 162, and the next day Big Paul taking the leftover potatoes and beef and grinding them up and frying them for Monday dinner. He was an excellent cook and was always helping Nana with meals. We loved our visits to Oswego as kids. Dad would borrow one of the priest's cars and drive us there around a 12-hour trip in those days. And we would divide time between the O'Briens on the west side and the Callahans on the east side, both of whom spoiled us in great fashion. Mother got a chance to spend time with Nana and Big Paul and Dad with his family. On the west side, we had trips with Mother and Franny Brown to Fairhaven on Lake Ontario for picnics and swimming. On the east side, we would take trips to Catfish, another part of Lake Ontario, where Uncle Jim had a rough cottage and a rocky beach, and we would get horribly sunburned, eat ourselves silly, and drink pop. We heard many stories from both Nanas, and I regret not recording them, because they were fascinating, gossipy, and the stuff of legends. Big Paul was one of the most upbeat individuals I ever met. He was enthusiastic and sincere. Everyone in town knew and liked him because whenever we walked into town, we would always be hearing, hi there, Paul. We would sometimes go on rides in their car. I wasn't allowed to drive it. And Nana would sit in the back seat and constantly harangue him for how, why, and where he was driving. One night we were coming back from a fairly short drive along what we used to call the loop on Lake Ontario. And Nana was particularly vehement to the point that when Big Paul made a turn on West 3rd, he sideswiped a parked car, kept going, I don't think he knew what had happened, pulled in the driveway, helped Nana out of the back, and that was that. I never went on another ride with them. <laughs> After Nana died, I was making a visit to Oswego during Easter week. Big Paul was excited, as always, to see one of his grandchildren and we were sitting on the kitchen table recalling stories, and he began weeping out of nowhere. I asked him what was bothering him, and he said he never thought he would outlive Nana and didn't quite know how to live without her. I tried to jolly him up by recalling some of those infamous car rides with Nana, and I told him about our last ride together. He thought for a moment, and then he said, you know, John, she was usually right. I depended on her to keep me going in the right direction. He was a gem. Nana was a very private person, very self-conscious, and very uncomfortable with people she didn't know. She and I had some of the most 
amazing conversations about life, religion, philosophy, movies, and her favorite radio shows. They didn't have the TV in those days. When Nana died, it was very difficult for me to uh, accept because I was going to miss her sense of humor and the life-changing conversations I had had with her. She was always worried about dying, about unforeseen tragedies, and the unfairness of it all. Our father earns his master's in music degree from Syracuse University, and mother is quickly pregnant again. Within a year of John's birth, Paul Edward, number three, not just a number, was born on October 15, 1940. A beautiful baby, he was named after both grandfathers, Big, Paul O'Brien, and Edward, Fishy Callahan. Even with three kids on board, mother and dad joined a theater club. And in 1941, our father is learning instruments of the orchestra because he wanted to become accredited to teach you know, music in the schools of Oswego. But there are zero opportunities in Oswego, so he teaches in a nearby town, Mexico, New York. Mother is commissioned to sing at a St. Paul's fashion show and continues to travel to Syracuse weekly for lessons. While there, she attended the symphony performance of César Franck's Symphony in D minor. It so moved her that it remained on her all-time favorites hit list. Let's listen to a sampling of Paul Edward, number three, not just a number, and his memories of Oswego. Biggest memories of Swiggle is that there's an east side and a west side. And in between is the Swiggle River and a bridge that goes from east side to west side. And on the east side was my dad and his family. On the west side was my mom and her family. So the Callahans were on the east side, the O'Brien's on the west side. And that's very important in the fact that there are different cultures. One was uh, the work side, and the other one was kind of like a management side. And um, the weather there was intense. Uh, the winters were just awful. In fact, the worst winter ever in the United States at one time was in Oswego, and I happened to be there when it happened. The people were walking out the upstairs windows of their houses to go someplace. It was that deep, you know? It's wild. They had some storms that came in that were just awful, powerful lightning and rain and wind and everything else. You know, it was just wild, wild weather. Anyhow, when these great big storms came in, uh, my grandmothers would get in their closets with rosaries and a candle and uh, wait until, you know, we're praying that uh, God didn't take them at that time. And um, one time there was, um, the grandmothers were together at the same house. It was at my dad, my mom's house. And <clears throat> this great big storm came in and the lightning, you could, it just lit up the whole house, you know? And you could smell ozone. It was whacking that hard. Mm. And uh, so I was in the living room. I opened the closet and there's both my grandmothers. So it didn't get along very well. Both standing there, both with the rosaries and both with candles. Another memory was, uh, we'd stay uh, about two weeks uh, at summertime to go from Detroit by train to my grandma's, or my, you know, both grandmas and grandpas. And we'd spend 
time at each place, get spoiled some, and do a lot of, oh, exploring of the city. And it was a very interesting city. It had a fort um, that was used, oh, back in Prohibition, where my grandfather had a restaurant there. And I come to find out years later that he imported, he was a bootlegger, really. Good for him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Getting it out of Canada by boat and bringing it to the United And they were very grateful for that. And uh, the, the service protected his interests. And uh, he was a very successful restaurateur. He was so successful, he had a restaurant in the middle of the bridge between the east side and the west side. It was a kind of a famous restaurant where they park at the end and the horse and carriage would take people down to the restaurant. And, but my father, my grandfather, that's Paul O'Brien, he um, was very wealthy at, at point point. Then come the Great Depression mm -hmm. and he lost everything, like a lot of people did. So he wound up working for his brother at Neil O'Brien Lumber Company. And so some of the other Bryans worked there too. So my dad on the east side, We'd go over there, His, the Callahans were there, and uh, I'd uh, spend time with my uh, grandparents from my dad's side, and they were, they were characters. They loved to really kind of be mean to each other, but they loved each other intensely. You know, they'd just say awful things to each other. The O'Briens were a little bit hoity-toity, and the other ones were not so hoity-toity, but they the cultures were somewhat similar, but they were really different. There was a difference between the east side and the west side. Mm -hmm. By the way, the fort was on the east side. Interesting. Yeah. Well, my grandfather, Fishy, was a plumber, and he had a lot to do with getting water into uh, a swiggle, uh, and he did a lot of underground, underwater welding. Mm. So he was... Uh, Very dangerous. Very dangerous, and he was... Uh, well, I'd say a thug. Okay. The people feared him, you know. He was tough. <laughs> yeah, he was. And back then, they used to have fistfights. And uh, he'd, uh, well, he was known, very well known as being. Legendary? A, very legendary <laughs> for a fighter. Oh. Yeah. In fact, um, we went to Big Paul's funeral, and uh, we were in a bar. Guy asked what the name was. He said, Kelly, any relation to Fishy Kelly? He said, yeah. Didn't buy a drink the rest of the night. <laughs> they remembered him. Really, Aww. really, yeah. He was... A character. Oh, yeah. In the summer, he had a straw hat. And a lot of times, he didn't have to buy a drink because people owed him for other things. He was uh, he was magic. And of course, my parents were magic, but uh, this was, you know, we were, I was visiting from Detroit area going there. I was born there. I left when I was about five years old to go to Gross Point. And then we, later on, got a chance to go to uh, Swiggo for a couple of weeks. To get, my mom and dad needed to get rid of us to get, sure. get some breathing room. And we, we had a lot of fun, and the grandparents uh, were a lot of fun. Although Mother is pregnant again, she continued to remain active singing at luncheons, church events, and at the synagogue. She would often sing at home on East 6th Street, vocalizing and studying with her music taped to a kitchen cupboard. Her favorite pastime was playing charades at parties hosted by Franny Brown, her best friend for life. 
Much more on Franny Brown later. Two years later, James Patrick, number four, not just a number, is born on February 1st, 1942, a feisty eight-and-a-half-pound boy. Mother says in her autobiography that during this time, she really enjoyed being a housewife, conquering cooking with the occasional disaster, and regardless of what was going on, Mother always insisted we ate dinner by candlelight. What I think is interesting is when Mother was dating our father, she said, you know, Jack, I could never have six kids like your mother. I want four kids, two girls and two boys. Let's listen to James Patrick's number four, not just a number, Memories of Oswego. My memories of Oswego are almost all sublime. It was a wonderful respite uh, for me as a child because uh, it was pretty much the only time you were responsibility free. I uh, didn't have to practice uh, the piano or the organ or the cello and uh, could uh, just kind of play. And we did a lot of that. And we were treated like kings and queens by uh, both sets of grandparents. And I'd start with my mother's mother and father first, Nan and Big Paul, who we called. And they lived at, uh, on the west side of Oswego. And they lived in a very posh neighborhood. And uh, the house that they lived in was a gift to uh, Nana O'Brien from her husband. It was a wedding gift. So they had that house from, uh, from the get-go. But Nana O'Brien uh, would always uh, cater to us. I can remember, for instance, being young and when we got out of the bathtub and the bathtub was right off the kitchen, that she would have a towel uh, or towels on the floor so that you wouldn't get the bottom of your feet dirty or cold. <laughs> so that, that, that was pretty spectacular. And one of the highlights, though, being in Oswego was uh, spending time with Big Paul on his in his pickup truck that we drove around in and visited various spots, and particularly what they called Around the Loop, which took you out by the shores of Lake Ontario, where we would get out and skip, skip stones. Usually wind up getting a frozen uh, frosty, like a, an ice cream cone as well. One of the pickup trucks that uh, Big Paul uh, had only had the, the driver's door. There was no passenger door. And I don't know how we could get away with this, but we would drive around, you know, hanging off the, uh, with no door. Uh, and my grandfather, Big Paul, was not all that good a driver, but uh, he would be smoking a cigar, and uh, we would watch the sunset as we skipped stones. So that, those, those are all very pleasant memories. On the other side of town, on the east side, uh, of Oswego, my paternal grandparents um, lived in uh, a very small uh, house. It's a few blocks up from Bridge Street, which was the main drag through Oswego. And uh, Nana Callahan always had uh, wonderful meals uh, prepared for us. And uh, we would sometimes spend time 
uh, deciding who's, uh, which of the two grandmothers' house we were going to go to based on what they were serving for dinner. And uh, so, so that was always exciting. It, it really and truly was. Now, uh, Nana Callahan in this very, very small house was in charge in, in, in the kitchen was her domain. It really and truly was. That's where she sat and listened to her um, soap operas as the world turns and others of, of that elk. Uh, and she loved that and would always be uh, kind to us. Fishy, who was my paternal grandfather, uh, whose real name is Edward Callahan, uh, was basically, as I remember him, going nearing a retirement uh, when I was eight or nine years old, or maybe possibly 10. Uh, and he would sit on the front porch and he would uh, be wearing uh, an undershirt and his pants and smoking cigarettes. St. Bernard's Catholic Church in Detroit was searching for a specialist in Gregorian chant, and the pastor there heard that Gregorian chant was our father's specialty. So, our father has an audition rendezvous with St. Bernard's pastor, Father O'Rourke, in Buffalo, New York. Our father first played Bach's fugue in D minor. Father O'Rourke says, that's too complicated. So, our father then played Jesus' Joy of Man's Desiring, which sealed the deal. On August 1st, 1942, our father takes the new job on Detroit's east side. He relocates and lives in the rectory as there's very limited housing. Our mother continues our father's gig at St. Paul's Church in Oswego, playing and singing the masses. I remember her exclaiming that she loved singing the Dies Rerae. Mother said that she was so excited and really thrilled at the prospect of moving to Detroit. So, Mother, Margaret, John, Paul, and James P. relocate a year later, a whole year they were separated from our father, as there was, again, very limited housing due to the war. So, Father Kirby had a family's farmhouse on Kirby Road in Gross Point. It became available. This farmhouse was two blocks from Lake St. Clair. Again, our parents went from one great lake to another a bit smaller lake. Mother really enjoyed Father O'Rourke's housekeeper, Rose LaRose, and she learned to play pinochle. In order to make it to the 6 a.m. Mass, our father had to get up at 4.30 a.m., walk a mile, take a bus to the streetcar, which he took to the corner of Mack Avenue and Lillibridge. What a daily journey. Please listen to John Foster, number two, not just a number, as he recalls the move to Detroit. It was an exciting trip, you know. Uh, first of all, we hadn't seen our dad for over a year. And uh, so, and we were moving to Detroit, you know, kind of thing. So getting, I remember you know, getting off at the 
train station. It was quite a huge place, beautiful place and all that. I think Dad had already arranged for renting that house on Kirby Road in Gross Point. And we ended up there. It was a great big house. It was very drafty. It was uh, it was an old an old place, you know. It, it didn't feel like and then when we were kids, going we loved to go to the show every Saturday, the Delta kind of thing. And uh, I love the war movies, you know, John Wayne and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, we had a we had a real prejudice towards Japanese and of course towards Germans. Because of you know the movies that we saw, they were basically propaganda. We love that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, I think you know that's where I got my you know lifelong fascination with World War II, and and all the the history with it. I do remember we loved going to we went to the show every Saturday afternoon. I think it was ten cents, ten cents uh, for two movies, uh, the newsreel, a uh, little bag of popcorn. I mean, we just loved the movie. And I do remember as a family, we went to see Pinocchio. I remember the uh, airplanes flying over, going to Selfridge. You know, I mean, sometimes the sky was just filled with bombers wow. flying over, huge sound, it was really kind of scary. One thing is they had double daylight saving time in those days. So uh, during the summer, when we went to bed at nine o'clock, it was still light outside. It was really kind of weird. That and I vaguely remember uh, you had to put up uh, curtains, you know, you couldn't leave your lights on. Uh, what they call a blackout. Certain things you couldn't get. Gasoline was very, you know, getting certain kinds of meat, certain, you know, things like that. People were doing vegetable garden, what they called victory garden, saw that. I remember sitting on the porch at St. Bernard's with a bell ringing it. And all these cars going up and down Mac Avenue. It was BJ day in August. 1945, and uh, the war was finally over, and people were just crazy. I remember cars were banging into each other, crashing into each other. People beeping their horns, and it, it was some, quite a celebration. Before we listen to Paul Edward, number three, not just a number, as he reminisces on the move to Detroit, just a clarification on the logistics. My parents moved from Kirby Road to Lillibridge to be closer to St. Bernard's, and then later they moved to Iroquois to be closer to St. Catharines and close to St. Bernard's. Why? Because our father was music director and organist at both parishes for over 14 years. It's true. Yeah, but I, I remember Kirby Road. Was, the biggest memories were... My dad, well, they had no transportation, no car. And this is in Gross Point. Gross Point's a long way from Detroit. So my dad had to walk to Mack Avenue. We were between Mack Avenue and Kirchhoff. And uh, he'd walk to Mack Avenue, get on a bus, and and go to St. Bernard's, where he had a job. And my mom would have to go someplace. She'd go up to Kirchhoff and take a bus and go into Detroit. It was an easier ride. And it was a farmhouse that was beat up. It was really in bad shape. Dicey, I understand. Yes, yeah. very dicey. So uh, you moved from Kirby to Lillibridge, yes. right? Which wasn't far from St. Bernard's. It was across the street from St. Bernard's. Okay, that was We'd convenient. look out the front door. The church was on the left and the nunnery was on the right. And the playground was right directly in front of us. First of all, it was very church-oriented and very school-oriented. And then we have the St. Joseph nuns. This Father Rourke was a character's character. He was unbelievable. But he took care of Dad, and he appreciated Dad's music, and he appreciated all that. 
and dad was at choirs and, and had a lot of services going on, mm -hmm. which we were forced to uh, participate either in other words, keep us busy, or uh, there was singing, too. We were in the choir. You were in the boy choir? Oh, yeah. And then sure. were you an altar boy? Yeah. But there was a lot of things that happened on Lillibridge, too. My dad was not a mechanic. He was a musician. He could play music with both hands and both feet at the same time, using his fingers to form chords and combinations with speed, accuracy, finesse for real beauty. But he wasn't a mechanic. So I think he and my mother early in their marriage prayed for a mechanic. The oldest, Margaret, was destined for stardom. The second, John, was to fill the male child role. Then things got to be more practical, and I guess that's why they picked me. I remember in kindergarten making something mechanical from wood. When I brought it home, everyone was amazed that I could do such things and even contacted the teacher to see if this was indeed true and not just some cruel hoax. Very quickly, tools started showing up. I really liked them. They gave me status, a difficult thing to achieve and maintain as in the number of children began to increase steadily. I got my first two-wheeler in pieces, better yet, in parts. My parents and peers were in awe, a bike that worked that came from rejects, and it worked well. There was a cupboard in the kitchen in the Iroquois that some demented carpenter had hung so that the door would swing open automatically if it wasn't latched. It wouldn't latch unless somebody purposely did so. Needless to say, with so many people using the cupboards, the door swung open quite often. There was another problem. The lower corner was at a height one quarter of an inch lower than my mother was tall, low enough to hit her in the head and high enough for her not to see it. So after about the hundredth time of banging her head on it, she jumped amazingly high into the air and ripped it off the wall. The instant victory over the dogged beast soon melted into embarrassment. I was summoned to fix it before my father got home. I was also forced to swear I would never tell. I didn't learn everything myself, though. I was taught by others, too. My grandmother, O'Brien, complained of a smell of gas out at 162 West 3rd Street. So my grandfather let me go with him down the basement steps to help find it. He used a match, and when he found it, a blue flame about four foot long jumped out in front of my face. My grandfather put it out quickly with an explicit promise for me not to tell. These lessons combined with the promises not to tell were the greatest ways to learn. Back then, people were out on their porches, you know, because everybody had like a porch and that was how the houses were built. Here's another thing is on Lillard Bridge, and it became true in Iroquois. As soon as the mail was done, you got the hell out and you went out and played. You know, weather or no weather, even in the wintertime, You'd go down to the alley and there was steam coming out and you'd go in and it was like real spooky because it was a place that did pressing mm -hmm. for clothes and whatnot. You'd only come home if you had to. The kids were out running like wild and having a great time. Kick the can, playing games like war. It's just a lot of fun. The, the key is you come home, you eat, and you get the hell out. Or you have jobs to do, and I had lots of jobs, helping with the kids and whatnot. 
And now, we have James Patrick, number four, not just a number, and his memories of the big move to Detroit. Well, my memories of Iroquois are, 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 are I, I don't know how to describe them right this minute, but uh, the telephone number on Iroquois was Walnut 16471, and uh, Eleanor's number was Tuxedo 56015. <laughs> uh, there's some numbers you don't forget. It's like a social security number. We moved into uh, a, a beautiful house on Iroquois, 3811, and had been custom made for the Brady girls, who were the original builders slash owners. And it uh, was a well-constructed home. While we were there, a friend of the family, uh, Vincent Fritz, helped to remodel the third floor, which would have been the attic. And eventually all of the boys at the time wound up sleeping and that's where our dressers were and, and that kind of stuff. We're on the third floor. Uh, and it was a lovely place to be because we could talk in the night back and forth and laugh, a lot of jokes, a lot of interesting conversations for sure. That would have been John Paul, myself, Brian, and maybe Ed. Yeah, Ed had dormer with the windows that faced out onto Iroquois. Ah. In my bed, which was, they were all twin beds, faced the, uh, the quote-unquote orchard, the extra lot that was uh, on the south side of the house. And there were um, five, four apple and one cherry tree. Wow. And uh, especially in the spring, at this time of year, it was absolutely gorgeous. The apple blossoms and the and the smell of them, I, I, can, I mm. can remember that a lot. So uh, in the stairs from the second floor to the third floor were very steep, as often attic stairs are. And uh, when mother would come to, uh, she would say, I'm going to be coming up these stairs and you've got five minutes. And of course, everybody had to run around get your clothes and get them uh, put away or hung up or whatever it was that we did with them. I don't I don't even remember. But that it was a, a lovely house. It had a beautiful living room with a fireplace and uh, a sunroom on the back. It had a servant's set of stairs uh, that you could go from the second floor to the kitchen directly by mm -hmm. a back set of stairs not to be confused with a very formalized kind of set of stairs that came down right in the front of the of the house. The kitchen was a servant's kitchen, so it was small, mm. very small. There was a breakfast room, lovely room. Uh, and then there was uh, the, uh, the kitchen had a built-in ice boxes uh, mm. with the, the kind of handles you don't see anymore. And uh, those were all custom made. Uh, pieces and it had four separate sealed compartments. It was your typical colonial. It was about two short city blocks to uh, from Iroquois to St. Catharines, the church, the school, the yeah. convent, all of that stuff. And the distance between St. Catharines and St. Bernard's was a little over a mile. There were at that point there. I don't know how many parishes there were in Detroit. I mean, St. Anthony's and St. Charles. Uh, were all within a mile uh, of St. Catherine's. They were sisters of St. Joseph, and that's what the attachment was with Dad and why he would go to Kalamazoo. When we went to St. Catherine's, of course, those were IHMs. Mm -hmm. uh, and we used to have to go back to St. Bernard's. We had a 
a guy pick us up to St. Bernard's where we would practice our instruments and have lessons. Uh, Mr. Bodner, Margaret studied the violin, John the French horn, Paul the oboe, myself the cello. cello. I and got then, my first little cello, a three-quarter cello, I think. How was that, Jim? Was it fun or was it like... No, it was work. And uh, some of us are, are better musicians than others. Uh, for somebody like me, it was work. For somebody like Brian, there would have been some pleasure involved in that too, I think. But you know that story, don't you? Playing the taps? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he'd be picked up by the uh, the funeral home right in front in their driveway. I can remember it. Oh my gosh! And he had a shirt and a tie on. And uh. he, he would go, and an hour later or less, he'd come back with like twenty five bucks. And uh, I'm sorry, he made some serious Just money. So Dad did these jobs without a car for yeah a, a, quite a while. Quite he a would while. walk or take the streetcar. Yeah, he bought a forty six Ford uh, two door hardtop um, from one of the priests. And then and for years he was buying cars or from, from, from priests. Yeah. Margaret was playing masses every day at St. Margaret Mary's. I was playing at that time all the masses uh, at St. Catherine's. Uh, John, I don't know where John was playing. I don't think he was because he was still in the seminary. No, he didn't. But Paul played someplace too. Just talking about the two parishes, you we really don't know. How they how Dad did do it, but he did it. He well, he yeah, hired different people. Josephine Fritz, for instance, Josephine subbed for him at St. Catherine's, so he had some uh, some backups. But then he had to pay for them. I have very very fond memories of taking the train. The New York Central, in particular, was the train we rode, and we would take it from uh, downtown Detroit on Michigan Avenue to uh, Syracuse. And we would uh, disembark in Syracuse and we would be met there by one of the uncles or somebody who would then drive us the remainder of the way to a swiggle. I love to go on the train because uh, you not only had these plush seats that you sat in, but they also served you meals. And, and when they served you uh, lunch and dinner, there would inevitably be uh, linens and all the silverware matched and uh, there were little games and toys that the conductor or whomever was uh, servicing that particular car that we were in. So it was elegant. Stay tuned for episode number five where we will remember and honor Brian Francis, number five, not just a number. For images related to this episode, please go to one of eighteen not just a number dot com. That's O N E of one eight not just a number dot com. Enjoy. <laughs>